Good morning, everyone. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 7 as we continue our study through the Gospel of John. We've noted that the first 11 chapters of John are introducing us to the theme of division. Jesus receives at first a warm reception, but not long after that, there was heated division. Much like in our country right now, there's a lot of division. Much more so, there's division over the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Either you're for him or against him. He came to his own, and his own didn't receive him, but as many as received him, to them he gives the right to be children of God. Today we're going to look at an interesting event in the life of Christ. About six months before he was crucified, Jesus had spent an extended time in Galilee doing ministry, and now he was about to leave Galilee permanently to return to Jerusalem, this time for one of the famous feasts of the Jews called the Feast of Booths. According to the historian Josephus, the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles was perhaps the most festive and most well-loved of the three feasts of the Jews. It was at this time, somewhere in September or October, that the Jews would all move outside and live in handmade huts made out of branches and palms and leaves to remember their time of travel in the wilderness when God protected them as they left Egypt. And so thousands, perhaps even a million Jews, descended upon Jerusalem, and many of them set up huts outside of the city, but those who lived in the city actually built huts on their flat roofs and lived in the huts for that week. There were a lot of traditions that the Jews had begun to practice accompanying these, including an outpouring of water each day by the high priest and a ceremony of lights. And so we're going to note several things this morning. First of all, we're going to notice that Jesus goes to an increasingly divided Jerusalem. So look with me in your Bible at the first 13 verses after we pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word, and we pray that your Holy Spirit will bless it, strengthen it to our minds and souls and spirits. May we be encouraged as we learn more about Christ. May you call unto yourself those who are your own. And Father, I pray that those who are struggling or hurting or suffering or in need of a word from the Lord might be blessed as we study together by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's look at Jesus' arrival into this increasingly divided Jerusalem. And after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now you'll remember back in John chapter 5 that Jesus had performed a miracle on a lame man and told him to carry his bed on the Sabbath, for which the Jews accused him of being a wicked man, and they decided that they wanted to kill him for claiming that he was God. Verse 2 tells us the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths was at hand, and his brothers therefore said to him, depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples may behold your works which you are doing. Well, I want you to note here that according to Roman Catholic tradition, Mary was a perpetual virgin, 
But that was not decided upon until the 1800s when it was spoken by one of the popes. However, the scriptures tell us that Joseph only kept Mary a virgin until she gave birth to Jesus. Now, the interesting phenomena was that Jesus' brothers and sisters grew up with him, but they did not fully realize that he was actually a divine being, that he was God who had become flesh. And so we're going to read that not even they believed in him. But as they saw their brother Jesus at this age of 32, continuing to do miracles, they figured, hey, if you're going all out and you want to declare yourself as a religious leader, you ought to go down to Jerusalem and take it to the next level. If you're going to go to showbiz, you need to go to Hollywood. And so they encourage him to go down to the Feast of Booths in Jerusalem. But you'll notice that his response is quite unusual. They said to him in verse 4, no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. And again, we know that believing means to trust and commit your life to follow him. After the resurrection, we learn that Jesus revealed himself to at least one of his brothers. And by the time we get to Acts chapter 1, the other brothers had become followers as well. Verse 6, Jesus therefore said to them, My time is not yet at hand, but your time is always opportune. Well, I think what he had in mind here is that I'm not on your timetable. I'm being led by God. I'm following everything that the Father leads me to do, leading to my hour of crucifixion. So I'm not going to hop at your agenda. But then you'll note that Christ adds something very profound. He said, the world cannot hate you. And the reason it doesn't hate his brothers is we learn later in John chapter 15 that the world loves its own. You remember that the world is this evil system in which we live that's headed by Satan. And there's a sense of camaraderie, a sense of connectedness that unbelievers have. It's a dark, foreboding system that has a hostility toward God and toward his people and, and an unspoken, mysterious connection towards unbelievers. Jesus said, but it hates me. But you'll note why the world hates Jesus. Because Jesus testifies that the deeds of the world are evil. Well, that's really important because many Christians today have come under the delusion that it's enough for them to simply witness by their life just be a nice person and never say anything, never bear witness to Christ, never talk about the gospel. And if you do that, no one's going to get mad at you. But I can assure you that that's not the way a disciple lives his life. A disciple witnesses both by his life and by his lips. We're called by Christ to bear witness. And we learn from this passage and others that all who desire to live godly in Christ will be persecuted. And that's because of the fact that we remind unbelievers of their coming judgment. We remind them of their sin. We remind them as repentant followers of Christ that they're going to have to answer for their sins. And so they have a hostility about them. In fact, Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 2. He said, we are a fragrance of God among those who are perishing and among those who are being saved. We are a fragrance of death 
to some and of life to others. And so because Christ spoke of sin and judgment, the world hated him. And though we ought not to go around with an angry spirit, we are to remind people that there is a judgment coming. And unless they come to Jesus, they're going to perish. But we're not doing this alone. Jesus said, the Holy Spirit has come and he is convicting the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Verse 8 is a little confusing, though, because it looks like Jesus misled his brothers. He said, go up to the feast yourselves. I don't go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. And having said these things, he stayed in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as it were in secret. Now, we know that Jesus never sinned. The scriptures teach clearly that he would never have lied. And so we have to wrestle with some possible solutions to this apparent deception on the part of Christ. Probably the easiest solution to this is that there are numerous Greek manuscripts that do not say, I do not go up to the feast, but rather, I do not yet go up to the feast. Note verse 11. The Jews, therefore, were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? And there was much grumbling among the multitudes concerning him. Now, this word grumbling is an interesting word. It's a word used in Ephesians 2 about complaining, but it also is a word that, that generally means to have secret discussions. So it's not so much that people were were angrily grumbling and complaining, but rather that very quietly they were discussing their opinions. And the reason for that is because they didn't want to speak publicly for fear of what the Jews would think. And so some were saying he's a good man and others were saying no, on the contrary, he leads the multitude astray. The next section we're going to note that Jesus, as he arrives at the feast, explains four significant things about himself. And so if you'll follow along, beginning in verse 14, the first thing that Jesus is going to teach us about himself is that the source of his teaching is from God. It's kind of interesting when you think about it. Throughout history, there have been great men who have risen up in our midst, philosophers like Plato or Aristotle, great teachers like Buddhist teachings who follow monks and so forth. We have Mahatma Gandhi, Hare Krishna, and all of them claim to have some source for their teaching. And so as Jesus begins to teach, they want to know where he got his teaching from. Look with me in verse 14. But when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and he began to teach. The Jews therefore were marveling, saying, How's this man become learned, having never been educated? In other words, where, where did he learn this stuff from? Now notice how Jesus is going to tell them the source of his teaching. Jesus therefore answered them and said, my teaching is not mine. In other words, I didn't invent my ideas, but my teaching is from him who sent me. If any man is willing to do his will, he shall know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. 
He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true and there is no unrighteousness in him. Now let's think about what Jesus said just then. He said, look, I didn't make up my own teaching for my own benefit. I'm simply teaching what God told me to teach. I'm simply bringing the message that he brought. And this message is true, whether you like it or not, whether you believe it or not. But sometimes people will often ask the question, how do you really know if Christianity is the truth? Many times people will put up smoke screens and, and act as though their real trouble with Christianity is some intellectual problem that they can't solve. I want to suggest that one of the main reasons that many people reject Christianity is not because of the intellectual problems, but the moral problems, the volitional problems. They simply do not want to obey God. And so Jesus says in verse 17, if you want to know whether I'm telling you the truth, look inside your heart and ask if it's submissive to God. Ask if you're willing to do whatever God wants you to do. Ask him to reveal to you if Jesus is the truth that you're willing come hell or high water to follow him, regardless of what anybody thinks. For Jesus said, only those who do the will of God will enter the kingdom of heaven. Notice again, verse 17. If any man is willing to do his will, he shall know. He shall know. Ask yourself, as you listen to this message, are you willing to follow Jesus? Are you willing to do whatever he asks you to do, to believe whatever he says in his word? If you are, the Holy Spirit will authenticate within your very being that this is indeed the truth. Having answered the source of his teaching, now Jesus is going to go on to defend his Sabbath healing. He wants to bring up the subject of how the last time he was in Jerusalem, they sought to kill him because he healed a man and told him to take up his bed on the Sabbath. Jesus begins to reason with them how preposterous it was for them to be angry and want to kill him simply for doing an act of mercy on the Sabbath. Let's begin in verse 20 or 19. Did not Moses give you the law? And yet none of you carries out the law. Why do you seek to kill me? multitude answered you have a demon who seeks to kill you so now Jesus recounts his earlier interactions when indeed they didn't seek to kill him Jesus answered and said to them I did one deed and you all marvel on this account Moses has given you circumcision not because it's from Moses but from the fathers and on the Sabbath you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Don't judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Isn't that interesting? Jesus appeals to one of their very heartfelt traditions. God had told them in the word of God to to circumcise children on the eighth day. And of course they would do that, even if the eighth day was a, was a Sabbath day. And in other portions of the law, of course you would display acts of mercy on the Sabbath. And so Jesus defends his Sabbath healing. Why would you be angry with me? Because I healed a man with the Sabbath. 
on the Sabbath. And again, much like all of us are prone to do, we judged a book by its cover. We didn't have all the information. So when we make judgments about things, we ought to think carefully and compare them to Scripture rather than our own often faulty conclusions. Don't judge by appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So Jesus tells us the source of his teaching. He secondly defends his Sabbath healing. The third thing Jesus is going to do is explain where he came from. Who is this guy, Jesus, and where does he come from? Start with me in verse 25. Therefore, some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, hey, isn't this the man whom they're seeking to kill? But look, he's speaking publicly, and they're not saying anything to him. The rulers don't know that this is the Christ, do they? However, note verse 27, we know where this man is from. But whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. Now that's a really interesting verse because we happen to know that the Old Testament scriptures told us exactly where Christ was from. He would be from Bethlehem. In fact, in Matthew chapter 2, when Herod inquired where Jesus was to be born, the scribes told him, from Bethlehem of Judea. So I think the best solution for this is an understanding of extra-biblical literature at this time in which many suspected that the Christ would come out of nowhere. Notice Jesus' response to where he's from. Jesus therefore cried out in the temple teaching and saying, you both know me and you know where I'm from. And then he says this, and I have not come of myself. In other words, I didn't come down here from heaven for my own fortune. I did not come down here for my own pleasure. I did not come down here to seek praise from men. But he who sent me is true, and that's the one you don't know. But I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. Wow. That's profound. Where's Jesus from? He says, you know where I'm from. I came straight down from heaven from him who sent me. Well, this went over like a lead balloon. Verse 30 says, they were seeking therefore to seize him. And no man laid hands on him because his hour had not yet come. Pay attention to that phrase throughout the gospel of John. The hour of his crucifixion and his resurrection had not yet come. But again, note the division. Verse 31, but many of the multitude believed in him and they were saying, when the Christ shall come, he won't perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? But when the Pharisees heard the multitudes muttering these things about him, the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. As Donald Carson says, the arrest papers were signed at this time. It was time to put out a warrant for Jesus' arrest. But having just explained where he came from, Jesus doesn't stop there. He's now going to go on and tell us where he's going. Begin with me in verse 33. Jesus therefore said, For a little while longer I'm with you, 
and then I go to him who sent me. You shall seek me, and you shall not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Now, those of you who have read the Gospel of John know that in chapter 14, Jesus developed this in much more detail as he reminded his disciples he was going back to heaven to be preparing a place for us and that he would come again. And Peter was very upset that he couldn't come now. But Jesus frequently reminded his followers and his enemies that he had come down from God and that he was going back to be with God. Verse 35 tells us, The Jews therefore said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we shall not find him? He's not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? Now the word here, dispersion, is from the Greek word diaspora, which was often used of the Jews who had been scattered throughout the Eastern world and were no longer living in the land of Judea. Now, it's interesting that the irony here is that indeed the gospel will not only go to the dispersion of the Jews, but even to the Gentiles as well. What is this statement that he said? They wondered, verse 36, you will seek me and will not find me, and where I am you cannot come. Well, there we have the four things that Jesus taught. He arrives at the Feast of Booths, and he teaches the source of his teaching. My teaching is from God, and you'll know it if you'll follow it. And then he defends his healing on the Sabbath. He told us where he's from. It came down from the Father, and he told us where he's going. But as this chapter winds to a conclusion, Jesus offers the Spirit to all those who come to him. Now, I want to read you a brief quote from Donald Carson's commentary on the Gospel of John because it's very significant that on the last day, the great day of the feast that we'll read of in verse 37, that there was a great deal of interesting events that took place. Carson writes, On the seven days of the feast, a golden flagon was filled with water from the pool of Siloam and was carried in a procession led by the high priest back to the temple. As the procession approached the water gate on the south side of the inner court, three blasts from the shofar, a trumpet connected with joyful occasions, were sounded. And while all the pilgrim Jews watched, the priests processed around the altar with the container of water, and the temple choir sang the Hallel, Psalm 113 through 118. And when the choir reached Psalm 118, Every male pilgrim who had come for the Feast of Tabernacles shook a willow and myrtle twig tied with a palm in his right hand, while his left hand raised a piece of citrus fruit, a sign of the ingathered harvest. And everyone cried, Give thanks to the Lord, three times. And then the water was offered to God at the time of the morning sacrifice, along with the daily drink offering. The wine and the water were poured into their bowls and then poured out before the Lord. And these ceremonies of the Feast of Tabernacles were related in Jewish thought, both to the Lord's provision of water in the desert and to the Lord's pouring out of the Spirit in the last days. Pouring at the Feast of Tabernacles 
refers symbolically to the messianic age in which a stream from the sacred rock would flow all over the whole earth. And so with that in mind, it gives us a lot of historical background as to what is taking place on this last day of the feast. Apparently, at some time before or after the high priest poured out the water, Jesus stood and cried out, shouting to the multitude, verse 37, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were yet to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. One of the significant theological teachings of the Gospel of John is an understanding of the role of the Holy Spirit in the new messianic age of the new covenant. It seems that in the Old Testament times, the Spirit of God was present and he indwelt with believers. And from time to time, he would indwell certain believers, but sometimes temporarily. For example, the Spirit of God indwelled Bezalel in Exodus chapter 34, enabling him to make the ornaments of the tabernacle. The Spirit of God came upon Samson. The Spirit of God indwelled Saul, but the Spirit of God left him. David, as he repented of his sins in Psalm 51, understanding that the indwelling of the Spirit was often temporary, begged God not to take his Holy Spirit from him. But one of the joys and blessings of the new covenant that we are participating in is that Jesus Christ has poured out his Spirit upon all of us who believe, and all of us have been permanently indwelled with the Spirit of God. We learned a few weeks ago when we studied from John chapter 3 that God predicted in Ezekiel 36 that in the last days he would cleanse us and pour out his Spirit upon us and give us a new heart and cause us to walk in his commandments. My brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you to rejoice that we have received the Spirit of God that we have been indwelt and sealed and are empowered and taught by and led by and prayed for and comforted by the wonderful third person of the triune God, the blessed Holy Spirit. And you'll notice from this passage that Jesus is teaching that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit will first of all bring us a sense of peace and satisfaction, a sense of fulfillment that only he can offer. There's no drugs, no sex, no money, no power, no experiences. Nothing can put that thirst to rest apart from the coming of Christ and the gift of the Spirit. And so Jesus says, as we believe in him, from our innermost belly shall flow rivers of living water. For this he spoke of the Spirit. And I would encourage you as a believer to consider that you now have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. And that as you walk in the Spirit, as you pray and spend time with the Lord, confessing your sins and yielding to Christ, that the Spirit of God wants to flow through you as a living water, bringing blessing, bringing Jesus, bringing the life of Christ, bringing healing waters to this broken world. This week, 
one of our elders and I had an opportunity to go down to South Jersey and we interacted with a young man who was definitely a seeker and as we shared with him the message of Christ, it was such a joy to see his open heart, to hear him pray to receive Christ, to thank us for coming. What a joy it is to be a vessel in which the Spirit of God pours out rivers of water. We used to sing an old chorus, I've got a river of life flowing out of me. It makes the deaf to hear and the blind to see. Open up the doors, set those captives free. I've got a river of life flowing out of me. Notice verse 40. Some of the multitude, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. But others were saying, this is the Messiah. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there arose a division in the multitude because of him. And some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. Now we come to the final section of this chapter. Jesus arrived to a divided Jerusalem. He taught us four things about himself. And then he gave this great invitation and offer of the Holy Spirit to all who believe in him. But note the sad refusal of the leaders to come to Christ. Verse 45 says, The officers therefore came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to them, Why didn't you bring him? What profound words the officers answered. Never did a man speak the way this man speaks. This reminds me of the words of Jesus back in chapter 6 when he asked Peter, will you turn away? And Peter said, where will we go, Lord? You have the words of life. Those of us who know Christ, we love to hear his words. We love to hear his voice. We love to listen to his glorious teaching that changes our lives. It encourages us. It instructs us. It inspires us. It cleanses us. It gives us hope. And I thank God for the Lord Jesus. And all of us who are able to believe in him should be rejoicing. And I can assure you there never has been and never will be a way or a man that speaks the way that Jesus speaks. I hope you'll fall in love with him today. Note the response of the Pharisees. The Pharisees therefore answered them, you haven't also been led astray, have you? Not one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this multitude which doesn't know the law is accursed. Now Nicodemus, remember Nicodemus from chapter 3, the man who came at night, is now at least beginning to show signs of a growing faith in his heart. For Nicodemus challenges them, saying, our law doesn't judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? They answered and said to him, you are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet rises out of Galilee. Well, there we have it. Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles. Let me share as we close just a couple brief thoughts for our application. Remember that our vision and our purpose here at Riverstone Church 
is to make disciples who are making disciples. And I'll remind you that a disciple is a forgiven follower of Christ who is seeking to become like Christ and seeking to help others follow him. And I want to begin by reminding all of you who are forgiven followers of Christ that Jesus Christ is indeed the one to whom we ought to give our entire allegiance. I want to remind you of the words of Jesus back in chapter 7 here when he said in verse 17, if any man's willing to do his will, he shall know of the teaching, whether it's of God or whether I speak of myself. Those of you who may be doubting, those of you who may be confused, those of you who may be struggling, I want to encourage you to recommit yourself to trusting and believing that you have been forgiven by Jesus through the gospel. And that the Bible tells us that we are no longer called to live for ourselves, but for him who died for us. Peter tells us that the time already passed is sufficient for us to carry out our own lusts. But now we're to live the rest of our lives, no longer for the lust of man, but for the will of God. Continue to follow Jesus, my brothers and sisters. Don't allow the world and its ideas and its values and its enticements to pull you away from your purpose. You're here to follow Jesus, to live for him, to witness for him, to pray and serve him. There are so many things that want to pull you away from Christ in this evil world. Remember the words of John in 1 John chapter 2. Beloved, don't love the world nor the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father isn't in him. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, that's not from the Father, but from the world. But remember this final phrase. Jesus said, through the, the Apostle John, but the world passes away and the lust thereof. But anyone who does the will of God will live forever. So be encouraged, beloved, that you're a Christ follower. You're forgiven. Your purpose here isn't to please men. Your purpose is to become like Jesus. And I want to ask you that you would recommit yourself and pray that all of us at Riverstone Church would seek to carry out the will of God as it's revealed for us in the scriptures. Then I have a second thought. I want to encourage you this morning as you think about the wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit of God dwells in you and that the Spirit of God has given you gifts. And when Jesus said, from your innermost belly shall flow rivers of living water, the idea here is that God wants you to be a blessing. He wants you to be a blessing to other believers. He wants you to be a blessing from unbelievers. And I want to encourage you to pray that you discover and develop and use your gifts from the Spirit to bless the body of Christ. And ask God to fill you with the Holy Spirit. Ask him to give you opportunities and clarity and boldness so that you can share Christ with others. Pray that the love of Jesus will flow out of your life so that you'll have words of grace and kindness and compassion and healing for those who live in this broken world. Paul told us in Colossians 4 to walk with wisdom toward outsiders, letting our speech be seasoned with grace that we might know how we ought to speak and making the most of every opportunity. So pray this week that God would flow out of you and that he will flow out of Riverstone Church all into Bucks County, bringing men and women, boys and girls unto a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ.
And so as we close this morning, I finally want to ask you, which side of the fence are you on? Are you still undecided? The songwriter said it this way, one door and only one, and yet its sides are two. Inside and outside are which side are you? Are you committed to Christ yet? Have you decided to turn from your own ways, to stop trusting in your good deeds, to begin to trust and believe that Jesus is Lord of all and that he died for your sins to forgive you and that he's inviting you today to come to him by faith. He's inviting you to repent and turn and be willing to follow him. He offers you complete forgiveness. He offers you a new life. He offers to pour out his Holy Spirit inside of you and to satisfy you in ways that no church, no religion, no relationship can ever solve. Only Christ can meet your deepest need. Will you come to him this morning? If that's your desire, I want to invite you as we bow our heads and close that you would pray something like this. Lord Jesus, as I've listened to your word, I believe that it's the truth. I believe that you did come down from heaven. I believe that you died on the cross as the Lamb of God to take away my sins. I believe that you rose from the dead and you went back to the Father. And I believe you're coming again. And so this day, Lord Jesus, I ask you to come into my life. I receive you. I come to you. I believe in you. And I ask that you would forgive me. I ask that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit. Change my heart. And help me from this day forth to know that my sins are forgiven. And that I have become a disciple of yours. And now, Father, I pray for the rest of your people, our flock here at Riverstone, that you would encourage them with great joy. Help us this week to do your will. Help us, Lord, to sense the filling and empowerment of the Holy Spirit as the gifts of the Spirit and the power of the Spirit flows through our church, flows through men and women, boys and girls, so that more and more lives might be touched by Christ. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the gift of the Spirit. We present ourselves to you. May you use our hands and feet to be instruments of righteousness. Make us vessels, pure and true, ready to go into this world and bring the message of the gospel. We thank you, Father, and we ask all these things for the glory of God in Jesus' name. Amen. My brothers and sisters at Riverstone, I want to thank you for studying the word with us. I want to encourage you to be reading John chapter 8 for next week. And in addition, I strongly want to encourage you to pay attention to the website so that you'll know where we will be meeting next week as we are in the middle of a building transition due to our construction. So God bless you. May the Lord be with you. I ask that you pray for us as leaders and that we'll be in prayer for all of us as a church. Amen.